I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Exodus chapter 6. Again, Exodus chapter 6, verse 1 is where we are this morning. As a church family, we have been walking through the book of Exodus little by little for a few months now in our sermon series, Exodus out of Egypt. And so we're continuing that this morning in chapter 6, verse 1. If you need a Bible, go ahead and uh, grab one on the seats in front of you. If you want to open it up on your phone or tablet, uh, however you need to get there, we're not going to have the words on the screen of the main text, and so you will have to do the heavy lifting, all right? Great. All right, let's pray. Let's pray together as we get ready. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful for another Sunday. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, to sing to you, to pray to you, to worship you, Lord, to be together as we do this. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would help us understand what we read and hear. By your spirit, would you teach us, guide us, open our eyes and our ears, Lord, to see and to hear. And we pray you do your work here, Lord. Convict us and, and challenge us and change us and comfort us. And I do everything, Lord, that you desire to do. We invite you um, to be here. We love you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, hey, every subculture has some jargon that they use, a group of words or phrases that the insiders understand or mostly understand, but people outside that group don't always understand very well. And the same is true with Christians, right? We have some Christian jargon. We have some Christianese, don't we? Some of you saw maybe a post of mine on social media this week where I was curious to hear what are some of your favorite little words or phrases that as Christians we throw around that sometimes can sound a little silly if we think about it. Some examples that came to my mind were, have you ever heard someone pray, Lord, thank you for this food we're about to eat and bless the hands that prepared it? You ever heard that? It's like, why are we just praying for their hands? What about their feet or the rest of them or their lives? Or the, don't we, we just care about their hands? That's an interesting phrase to throw around. Or we will say, have you ever heard some? I talked about this one online. Have you ever talked about someone loving on you? I just, I just want to love on you guys. We're going to go love on some people. Isn't that kind of a strange phrase? Like if an outsider hears that, what does that mean? Like I, I'm okay with you loving me. I don't know if I want you loving on me. Like, what is that? I'm married. You know, I don't know what that's supposed to look like, but that seems strange, so maybe we should avoid that one. Have you ever heard someone say, they brought the word this morning? He brought the word. Heard that? Maybe someone from the outside is like, what does that mean? What word? The word. Oh, the, the Bible. He brought the Bible. Does, does the church not have Bibles? The pastor had to bring the Bible, is the, he's the only one who owns a Bible, so he had, to, he had to bring his Bible to church to use? Is that what it means when he brought the Word? What's that about? Or have you ever thought, what, what do people think happens when you have a quiet time? Is that a phrase that like, most people use? Or is that just a, again, a Christian subculture thing? I've got to have my quiet time. If you're not a Christian, you're like, does that mean just put the kids in another room, turn the lights off? Light some candles, have some coffee, time to yourself. Like, what happens in a quiet time? So again, there are these phrases that as Christians, in general, we understand, or maybe you've heard at least used before, even if you wouldn't be able to explain it yourself. One of those phrases that comes to mind that we're going to talk about today is the word, or the phrase, to be saved. What do we talk about? Being saved. Kind of a big deal. Kind of at, at the heart of 
our faith is salvation in Jesus. We are saved by Jesus. But let's think, what does that mean? If we had to explain that, what does it mean to be saved? To have found salvation. What are we saved from? What are we saved for? What are we saved by? Maybe that uh, explanation would be a little fuzzy in some of our minds. We hear the phrase, but we don't always drill down into it and seek to understand it more fully. And actually, we're in Exodus chapter 6 this morning in the Old Testament, and we're going to see God speaking to his people, and he's going to tell them how he's going to rescue them. He's going to tell them what he's going to do for them, how he's going to save them in their context. And it, it gives us this parallel picture. As we now live on this side of the cross, we live after the time of Jesus, and we see the cross and the New Testament and what salvation means for us today. But in, in the Old Testament, we actually see in this text this, this picture of how God works, how God saves, how God rescues, and what that means for his people. So we're going to see some implications even for our lives today as we look at Exodus chapter 6. So let's take a look together at chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. We're not going to spend a ton of time in these first five verses, only because much of what we read here has already been said. We've already seen God explain this. We've explored it together as a church. God saying, I'm going to lead the people out of slavery. I'm going to compel Pharaoh by my mighty hand. I'm going to step in. I'm going to rescue my people. I've, I've heard their groaning. I've remembered my covenant, the covenant, the agreement that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for their family. I remember the promises. I'm keeping my word, right? Those are all things that we've seen before in the text that we've talked about before. But notice here, at least in these opening verses, the context of what's going on. What happened right before these few verses? It was Moses coming to God, complaining, really concerned and frustrated. Why? Because God hadn't rescued the people yet. If you remember last week, things were actually getting worse for the people of God in Egypt. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and then makes life harder for the people of Israel. And so their slavery got worse, more bitter. They were treated worse. And so Moses goes to God and says, what is going on? Why are you allowing this to happen? Is this why you sent me to Pharaoh? Because things aren't getting better. They're only getting worse. God, you haven't rescued us at all. What's going on? And then we read the first five verses of chapter 6 that we just read together. God's response. And notice again what God doesn't do. God doesn't 
defend himself before Moses. He doesn't give Moses a full explanation and say, Moses, I understand you're upset. I don't want you to be mad. So here's why I'm working out the timeline the way that I am. Here's why I've allowed this. Here's why this is happening in this sequence. Just please don't be mad here. If you could see things from my side, you wouldn't be as worried. God doesn't do that. Because he's God. He doesn't owe Moses an explanation. So he doesn't answer every question for Moses. But here's what he does do. He simply reaffirms his promises. Moses, I'm going to rescue the people. Moses, I've heard their cries for help. Moses, I know what's going on. I've remembered my covenant. I am at work. So he doesn't defend himself and explain himself because he's God and he doesn't have to, but he does reaffirm his promises to Moses. And the same thing happens to us today, right? We might not get answers as to why is this happening? God, why haven't you stepped in? God, why haven't you changed this situation? He might not explain his full timeline for us in hopes to appease us, no, but he will say, I hear you, I am with you, I am at work, I am good, you can trust me. He reaffirms those promises. And that's what we see as the chapter starts. But then we see God saying, hey, I want you to give a message to the people. I understand that they're hurting. I understand that they are heavy-hearted because of what's going on. And so here's what I want you to tell them, Moses. And you see that God is going to roll out these I will statements. There's actually seven of them, kind of in a, in a string where he says, I will do this. Tell the people I will do this. Tell the people I will do this. Here are all the things that I am going to do for the people. And again, as we read about what God's going to do for his people in Exodus, we're also getting a picture of what salvation looks like for us in Jesus. Okay, and there's three different truths specifically from this text that I want us to see about salvation. What does it mean to be saved? This isn't going to be an exhaustive study of salvation. We could say a lot of things and spend a lot of time talking about that, but we're going to look at three specific truths that the text brings out. A friend of mine from Hawaii, uh, Scott Custer, is a pastor. He actually spoke here a few months back. He did a sermon series on salvation, and it took about 40 weeks. Okay? And so we could spend a lot of time talking about salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What are all the things that God does for us and in us when we come to him and when we are saved? But this morning we have just one week. We're going to look at it and talk about a couple things together. So the first thing, the first thing I want us to see from the text is that when we are saved, we experience freedom from the power of sin. Take a look at verse 6. It says, therefore, Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Three different I will statements in the text. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you. I will redeem you. All of these are speaking to the reality that the people are in slavery in Egypt and God is going to free them. He's going to lead them out of slavery. They will no longer have to serve Pharaoh. Pharaoh will no longer be in charge over them. 
they will be free to worship God and to serve him. Now, again, it's easy for us to look back to the Old Testament and this narrative specifically and understand what that means, right? They were slaves living in Egypt. Pharaoh was in charge. They had to do what he said. And now God's going to lead them out and they're going to live somewhere else and Pharaoh's not going to be in charge. They're going to have this new life to obey the Lord. Fairly simple. But today, what does this mean? If this is how God acts to bring freedom to his people in the Old Testament, what are the parallels for us in Christ? What is the freedom that we can experience in Jesus today? The reality is that scripture paints this picture for us that we, like those in Exodus, we're enslaved. Before Jesus, we are held captive to sin and death. We have this power over us called sin that leads us to selfishness, to broken relationships. Ultimately, it leads to death. And sin can be a difficult concept to grasp because it's so multifaceted. Sometimes the scripture is painted as this power over us. We also see it's this power at work within us that dwells in each of our hearts. But here we see that sin is a brutal taskmaster. And friends, in churches like ours, in churches like ours, we're used to talking about how Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin, aren't we? We celebrate in the gospel. We are freed from the penalty of sin in Jesus. He died for us. He's taken all our death and judgment and condemnation, the wrath of God on the cross for us. We're freed from the penalty of sin. But we don't always talk about or really understand that Jesus has also freed us from the power of sin. He's freed us from the power of sin. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 16. This one will be on the screen. It says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, <clears throat> or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. This text is saying you are a slave and a servant to whatever you offer yourself to. And there's two options. Either you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or a slave to obedience to Jesus. But staying neutral is not an option. Either we serve sin and it leads us to death, or we serve Jesus. And so for us, it's not a question of will we serve someone or will we serve something with our lives? It's not a question of if, it's a question of what or whom will we serve? What or whom will we give ourselves to? And the reality is that before Jesus, we all are slaves to sin, held captive by sin, unable to break free and live the life that God wants us to live. And that doesn't mean we're not responsible for our sin. We are. But it means that we don't have power on our own to free ourselves. Romans 6 puts it this way. Chapter, or excuse me, Romans 6, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So in Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we're united to him. 
And through this union with him, we're crucified with him. Our old self, our old life dies and is done away with that we would no longer be, verse 6, slaves to sin. But that we would be set free to live this new life in Christ. Now I know, again, for some of us, it's like, are we, I'm not so sure about this, Pastor. This sounds a little weird. But sometimes what we do is we think about salvation as it's transactional only. Debt is paid. We're forgiven. But salvation is also transformational. It is transactional. Our debt is paid in Christ. It's also transformational that in salvation, when we come to Jesus, something changes within us. We receive new hearts and the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Something happens within us that leads us to live a new life. Perhaps, friends, a sports analogy will help. No one saw it coming, right? Ever since the fall, friends, and our first parents' sin, Adam and Eve's sin, we all played for Team Sin. I asked Pastor Lee if I could borrow a jersey. I didn't tell him that it would be to illustrate sin, but he's going to have to forgive me. So imagine, friends, before Jesus, all of humanity, we are dead in our sins, rebels from God, playing for Team Sin, a.k.a. the Chicago Blackhawks. Okay? We're playing for Team Sin. Now, when you're on Team Sin, you do what the coach tells you to do. You know the playbook of Team Sin. In fact, the playbook is internalized. You've memorized it well. In fact, you're under contract to play for Team Sin. Can't just opt out of it. You are born into this reality where you pursue yourself and your own desires above all. You listen to the coach. The coach has authority over you. The owner of the team has authority over you because you play for Team Sin. But something happens when you enter a relationship with Jesus. The text says, in Jesus, we are actually set free from sin. Jesus sets us free from the power of sin. So with his blood, he has purchased your contract. And you no longer play for team sin. If you put your faith in Jesus, your contract has been bought, and now you play for a new team. which happens to look like the San Jose Sharks. <laughs> Jesus has redeemed you, has purchased you, and now you play for a new team with a new coach, with a new playbook, with a new owner. Which means, friends, what's going to happen if your old coach from Team Sin comes to you and starts to yell at you and tell you what you need to do and how you need to practice and the plays you need to run? Say, I don't play for your team anymore. You're not in charge here. I don't play for you. I belong to another team. Someone else calls the shots now in my life. I now am free to obey Jesus and live his way and do what he wants me to do. Sin is no longer my master. Sin no longer has authority because I'm on a new team. I've been set free to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, to obey Jesus in the power of God. Now, if sports aren't your thing, perhaps another illustration will work. Pretend that you live in an apartment complex and your landlord is 
a terrible person and they're grumpy and they keep raising the rent on you and they're very difficult and mean. And then your building gets purchased by someone else. Your building is under new ownership and they're good and they treat you well and they are fair and they bless you in countless ways. What's going to happen when the old landlord shows up at your door? Starts knocking? You need to listen to me. You need to pay up. I'm raising the rent. This is how things are going to work around here. What would you say? Say, friend, you have no authority here any longer. This apartment unit does not belong to you. So please leave. So in Jesus, we've been set free from the power of sin. We now can live a new life in him. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This does not mean that we will never sin. This does not mean that now in the Christian life you should just expect perfection and that you're never going to be tempted and you're never going to fall into sin. Some people will say that, but that's not true. We still will see sin in our lives. We still will struggle. We still will choose to sin. But this theological truth shows us that we no longer have to choose sin. We're no longer bound under the authority of sin. And friends, sometimes we're just overly pessimistic about sin in our lives. And we say, even though I'm a Christian, even though Jesus is in my life, I just have no choice but to sin. It's just going to happen. It's always going to happen. I have no resources within me now to do anything different. But that's not true. In Christ, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the presence of Jesus within us. We have new hearts through him, with a new disposition towards sin, where we can obey. We can, in the power of God, obey and live new lives and choose to serve Jesus. When sin comes around, say no to sin. It doesn't have power over us anymore. It doesn't have authority over us anymore. I'm not saying we're not going to be tempted. I'm not saying we're not going to still choose to sin sometimes, but Jesus has given us freedom to follow him. And so just how the people of Exodus were given freedom from their slavery, freedom from Pharaoh as being in charge over them, today in Jesus, we can be given freedom from the power of sin and begin to learn how to live this new life in him. Should I keep the jersey on? Should I? I'll take it. I'll go back to formal pastor mode here. All right. So, there's more here in Exodus. Verse 7, God continues. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Okay, two more I will statements. What is God going to do? He says, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Okay, God intends to enter this unique relationship with his people. They will know him intimately, and we will see how this story plays out in the Old Testament that God calls the people of Israel. He gathers them, says that they belong to him now. He will bless them. They will know him in a way that the rest of the nations do not. God will bless them, and God will use them to make himself known in the world, to bless all nations, ultimately to bring Jesus, the Savior, into the world. 
But this corresponds to the second truth about salvation that applies to us today. When we are saved, we are adopted into God's family. Through Jesus, we can become children of God, like the Israelites. God says to them, you will be mine. You will belong to me in a special way. I will be your God. So in Christ, we belong to God. We can call God our Father. Friends, this is the doctrine of adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. The scholar J.I. Packer, maybe you've read his classic book, Knowing God, says our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Adoption is at the very heart of the gospel. See Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God sent his son to redeem us, that we might receive adoption, that through Jesus we could be brought back into the family of of God. Beforehand, friends, we were orphans. We were like the prodigal son, away from home, lost, rebellious, on the run. But through Jesus, we've been brought home. And friends, I don't know if there's a stronger picture of salvation, a more powerful, moving image of what it means to know God than the picture of adoption, than the picture of family. You know, Amber and I have been in this foster care process. We've shared a little bit about that before. Uh, we're open to adopt. We, we don't know if we will get to adopt, but, but through the training, through the process, we've learned a lot about the system, about the foster care system, about how adoption works, and we've heard so many stories of kids being adopted and how absolutely transformational it is how it changes these kids' lives forever. And it, it's powerful to see these kids go from essentially being orphans, not having a home, or not having a safe home at all, to being welcomed in to a loving home, saying, you belong here. You're a part of our family now. Recently, I, I saw a video, maybe some of you have seen it, I might have shared it online, that has been circulating and it shows this, this young girl who's in foster care, and it's her foster parents coming to her, telling her, you're going to be adopted. We're going to adopt you and your siblings. And in the video, you're going to see her reaction and how she responds when she learns that she is going to be adopted and have a family. Take a look. Careful, open it up. There we go. I want you to read it. Going to be adopted? We love you, sweetheart. We'll always be your parents. I love you so much. I love you. Short, short little video. I'm not a crier, but most of the times when I see that video, I just can't help myself. It's 
It's this beautiful picture, right? Now, the reason I show you that is not to just get us worked up emotionally, but sometimes we talk about these concepts theologically, and they feel so abstract or so removed or so kind of up in the clouds, but that picture shows us instantly the, the change that happens in someone when they find out they have a family, right? You saw in her, right? She realized, now I have a family. Now I have parents who love me. Now I am known. Now I am loved. Now I belong forever. I have a home. And some of us, sometimes we, just, we take family for granted. Some of us do. Some of us don't, but some of us do. And we forget how powerful adoption is. But I want us to see that this is what happens for us when we put our faith in Jesus. We're adopted into God's family. God says, come home. You're my son. You are my daughter. I'm your provider now. I'm your protector now. You don't have to worry about the future because I'm guiding your life. I have a plan for you. I am at work. I know the number of hairs on your head. I'm going to care for you and guide you. Friends, in the gospel, we're, we're saved from sin and death. We're saved and we go from being children of of wrath, being under judgment, to being children of God, forgiven, loved, known, given all the blessings of being in the family of God. And so God says to the people in Exodus, I will take you as my people, I will be your God. And friends, in Christ, that same thing is true of us. We belong to him, He is our God. We can know him intimately. One last truth about salvation we see in this text, and we see it in verse 8. It says, And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So part of God's promise to his people in the Old Testament was the promise of the land. He would lead them to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, where they would dwell and live in safety, Sometimes, for us, that promise doesn't sound like it means much. Part of it's because we're such a transient culture, and we move around, and a lot of us don't live now where we grew up. You know, few of us, like, live in the same place our entire lives. Sometimes it still happens, but it's pretty rare nowadays, or even fewer of us have, like, family land that's passed on and kept in the family for generations, right? That's, not, at least in my experience, hasn't been a big thing, or I haven't seen a lot of people that have that. So sometimes for us, we think of the land and that promise, and is that, like, what's, what's the big deal? But in the ancient world, this meant a lot. Land meant wealth. Land meant security. Land meant safety. And so God is promising to give them a home, a hope, a, a future. Okay, so beyond just the present, hey, I'm going to lead you out of Egypt, and I'm also going to lead you to a good land. I'm going to lead you to somewhere you can live and dwell in safety, where you can worship me freely. And some would say that this specific promise of the land is still to be fulfilled. There's still this God will give uh, that specific geographic region still to his people. And there's a lot of political stuff mixed up in that and a lot of different opinions about that. But I will say that I think the New Testament at least gives us this picture that for us in Christ, uh, the vision and that promise is much bigger. It's much bigger because in Christ, our hope now is not for a specific geographic region only, but in Christ, we have the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. 
In Christ, when we're saved, we have this promise of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, meaning all of creation will be redeemed. All of creation will belong to God and his people. And so in Christ, the vision is much bigger than just a specific geographic region. And we see this in Revelation 21 and 22, the very end of the Bible. Where's the whole story heading? God renewing all things? God bringing the new heavens and the new earth? God coming down to dwell with his people in his world forever? And so in Christ, we have eternal life and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, dwelling with God, all of creation belonging to him and for us to reign with him. And so friends, I just want us to see that the people of Exodus, they had a future. They had the promise of the land to look forward to. And so as Christians today, we're a future-oriented people. Right? We, we don't just live in the present. And I know that can be difficult because we have a lot of concerns in the present. There are a lot of things that cause us to worry about health and finances and relationships, all kinds of issues in our lives. We deal with death and loss and money, all kinds of different stuff. I'm not trying to minimize uh, any of that, but I'm just saying, as Christians, we have this incredible hope to look forward to. This incredible future, the promise of eternal life with God and his good world forever. And so in salvation, when we're saved, we experience freedom from the power of sin, adoption into God's family, and eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to. And friends, I want you to see that this is all of God. This is all God's doing. It's not 50-50, like God is going to clean some stuff up and we're going to clean up the rest. God is saying over and over again, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to free you. I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to lead you to the land. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. It's all God's doing from start to finish. Salvation is of the Lord. And you see repeated throughout the text, maybe you notice this, over and over again he says, I am the Lord. It's like as he goes, as he makes his promises, he's reminding his people, this is who I am. I am Yahweh. I am your God. And as his name is mentioned, we remember his character, his power, his presence, his promises. So woven throughout here is not just these promises, but the one on whom the promises are based, God himself. I am the Lord. Now, it's important that we notice here how the people respond to these promises. Look at verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? So Moses takes all that God has told him and he goes and he shares it with the people. Here's what God's going to do. He's going to do this and this and this and bless you in this way and this way. They hear the good news. They hear the promises of God. They hear about the power of God. And they don't listen. They didn't believe. And then verse 12, we see some more doubt and discouragement and trouble for Moses. Moses says, well, if even the people aren't going to listen to me, how in the world is, is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And that's kind of where verse 12 leaves us. But I want to look back again at verse 9 and think about 
why don't the people listen? And think about it. So far in the story of Exodus, we've seen different reasons now why people don't listen to God. Different reasons why people don't believe in God and believe in the words that he's saying. And first we see Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't listen to God. Pharaoh doesn't do what God wants. Pharaoh doesn't believe the word of God. Why? Well, Pharaoh's hard-hearted. He's proud. He's aggressively in rebellion against God. He, he scoffs at God. Is that the same thing going on here with the people? What does the text say? Why don't they listen? Verse 9. Because of their discouragement. Their harsh labor. So for the people, their spirits are broken. They're wrung out. They are heavy-hearted. They are in pain. They've lost hope. So I think we should see from this, friends, that there are different reasons people don't listen to God. There are different reasons. None of this is good, but it's going to change how we respond. Because think about this. If someone has a hard heart, like Pharaoh, they're proud, they're aggressively in rebellion against God, then God's word to them will be quite confrontational. God's word to them will be, hey, you're not God, and I am, so you need to listen, you need to obey, you need to bow your knee, bend your knee to Jesus, the true king of the world. But if someone isn't listening to God because they're in this place, like the people of Israel, they'll, they're discouraged, they have a broken spirit. Maybe they need something a bit different. Now, I'm not saying that there's no hardness of heart involved for them. I'm not saying there's no pride involved for them. Not denying that truth. But maybe more than a harsh confrontational word, they need gentle encouragement from people around them. Maybe they need kindness. They need Reminders that God is for them, God sees them, God can rescue them, God will rescue them and be their help. Do, do you see how that would change how we would talk with someone, depending on how we view their situation? Sometimes people need a hammer to break up their hard heart. But sometimes people need a gentle hand to lift up their head. And sometimes what we do is we just miss that nuance. And so we paint everybody with the same brush. So we say, well, why aren't people responding to the gospel? Well, they're proud. They have a hard heart. They don't listen to God. They're stubborn. They're selfish. They don't want God's authority over them. And we can say theologically that those things are true. And at work in the human heart is rebellion against God. And at work in the human heart is the desire to be in charge and not to honor God. Those things are true. But if that's all we see, if that's all we say, if that's all we speak to, it's an oversimplification. Because there's also other things going on in their hearts that we can speak to. And so for some people, they're in a place where maybe the, the thing most on the surface, the most accessible way we can talk with them on their minds and on their hearts that we need to address is that they're discouraged they're lost, they're hurting, they're like the people here in Exodus, and that's why they're not listening. Their spirits are, are broken. 
So friends, think about this. Are people perpetrators of sin or victims of sin? Are they perpetrators or victims? The Bible would say yes. Both are true. Not denying that people are perpetrators of sin. That people make a mess of things and hurt themselves, hurt other people, dishonor God. I'm not saying that none of that, that those things aren't true. But I'm saying that also we should learn to see that people are, are victims of sin. They're, they're burdened. Their hearts are heavy. They're broken. They're oppressed by the enemy, by their own sinful hearts, and they need help. And so, all I'm saying is, we don't have to lead every gospel conversation with, you are proud, you have a hard heart, you need to recognize God as authority in your life, you are stubborn. Sometimes we need to start with, instead, hey, Jesus sees your pain. God knows what you're going through. God wants to help. God loves you. God can enter this situation and bring transformation. So sometimes, friends, we need to learn to lead with compassion, lead with kindness. And so do you see the difference? Hammer to break up a hard heart, gentle hand to lift the head. Sometimes the time is right for one of those and not the other. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus' invitation that day was come. And like the people in Exodus 6, heavy-hearted, exhausted, overwhelmed, discouraged, hard for them to listen, hard for them to believe, God say, come to me. I'll give you rest. In me, you can lay down your burdens. In me, you can find rest. In me, you can find freedom. In me, you can find eternal life and hope. In me, you can find a new family. And so, friends, we get to remember that truth today as we come to the table, where we celebrate as a church family the work of Jesus. We remember on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so, as a church family, we get to come to the table and remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. He died on a cross for your sin, for my sin, that we could be forgiven, that we could be given new hearts, freedom in him, adopted into the family of God. All of these things are ours in Christ. And so we remember him and celebrate him today. The music's going to play, and we have two stations up front. I invite you to come as you're ready. Uh, the elements are gluten-free, and we practice an open table here at FBC, which simply means we invite anyone who is a believer in Jesus, who has put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us, which means even if you're uh, from out of town or uh, just visiting, if you've put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate and celebrate with us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we uh, come to the table with open hands, Lord.
to receive. We know that we are needy, that we are fully dependent upon you. And so we thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, that your body was broken, your blood was shed in our place for the forgiveness of sins, and that you rose again to new life so that in you we might have this new life with your presence within us. So Jesus, we love you. We recognize you this morning as our king, as our savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.